of worship that it refers to me as Dr. George. I disavow that. Any lawyer with a JD that has uh, that insists on being addressed as law as doctor, get another lawyer. <laughs> when Steve asked me to uh, speak on evidence for the resurrection, I mentioned that I had over 400 pages of notes on the subject, and that when I taught it before as a full course at a Bible college, it was three hours a week for six weeks, 18 hours. Uh, and that didn't cover it all. He said, okay, you've got 40 minutes. <laughs> so I guess we better boogie, folks. Uh, first, let's recognize that the truth of the gospel depends, of course, on the reliability of the gospels for fact. You've likely seen attacks by the so-called Jesus Seminar and other so-called alleged scholars on the tax made on the veracity of the gospel testimony about the Lord's ministry in general and especially about the resurrection. Now, the factual reliability of the New Testament documents is a whole separate study in itself. And I want to just, but I just want to give you a couple of samples of the profound theories that are being circulated attempting to discredit the gospel for truth. Now, these guys aren't modest enough to refer to them as theories, but you will see that they are profound, profoundly absurd. One example, the Gospel of Matthew, they say, was first written in Hebrew as a testament to persuade the Jewish people that Jesus was their Messiah. But it was written perhaps as much as a century or more after Jesus by someone in the early church who ascribed the Apostle Matthew's name to it in order to give it credibility. Well, the first contention is correct. Early church commentators from about 90 to 200 A.D. write that Matthew was, really was written in Hebrew originally as a uh, testimony of Jesus' authenticity as the Messiah to the Jews. And in the year about 390, Jerome wrote that uh, he was translating uh, into Latin a copy of Matthew from the original uh, Hebrew, and that the original manuscript of Hebrew was in the library at Caesarea. But it takes really very little thought to reduce the second contention of these people to rubble, because Matthew was a publican a tax collector for Rome, perhaps the most despised occupation among the Jews and ranked with prostitutes, criminals, Samaritans, and those who didn't keep the law of Moses. Recall the allegation made against Jesus in the question posed to the disciples by the Pharisees. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? The publicans, the publicani, as they recall, were marginalized, despised, excluded from the synagogues, from participation in the ritual feasts. And we learn from other historical sources that they were uniformly dishonest to a man. Now, couple that crookedness with their allegiance to the hated Roman overlords, then labels like collaborator and traitor were sure to stick. 
Now, let's exercise a little common sense here. The earliest written sources confirm that the Apostle Matthew wrote the gospel that bears his name. That should be enough. But consider this. Using the name of a traitorous publican as author of a gospel could hardly be calculated to win friends and influence Jews. Matthew's authorship has got to be true because it was an admission of something contrary to the early church's best interest, and yet that's its testimony. Why would later church conspirators or some fraudulent writer attribute a gospel to a man despised and distrusted within the very society to which they were addressing that message? That's counterproductive. That's counterproductive, unless it's true. Of course Matthew wrote it. No fraud in his right mind would write a history of an itinerant, peasant, miracle-working carpenter from that backhill hick country of Galilee, a man rejected by his own hometown, a place from which one of his own disciples said, No good thing cometh. Say that he was raised from the dead, and then have the story put out on the name, under the name of a traitorous Roman tax collector. Now go out and try to sell that to the Jews. Of course, Matthew wrote it. You can't make that up. That theory makes no sense. The early church, itself heavily Jewish, may have gagged on it. But it was uncompromising with the truth of the gospel's origin. Look, a politically, correct, a politically correct church would have used the name of Peter or Andrew or Bartholomew, anybody but Matthew. Matthew's lousy PR. But as one who has cross-examined a lot of liars over a lot of years, I can tell you that when a witness admits a crucial fact that's contrary to his or her best interest, I know that I'm hearing an honest witness. I know that I'm hearing truth. Second theory. The Gospel of Luke could not have been written until well after 70 A.D., the year the Romans destroyed the great temple in Jerusalem, or maybe written into the second century by someone, anybody but Luke. Now here's how they arrive at that. In the 21st chapter of Luke... Jesus prophesied the destruction of the temple, saying, The day will come when not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. Very specific in the destruction description. But according to the critics, although he was a great ethicist, wonderful teacher, he was a mere man, and Jesus had no divine power to foresee the future and couldn't have prophesied the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D., and certainly not with such exactness, because when the armies of Titus Vespasian laid waste to the temple, they literally took it apart stone by stone, not one stone left upon another. Therefore, the critics say, Luke and Matthew and Mark also, had to have been written after 70 A.D., and the prophecy written back into Jesus' mouth ex post facto, after the fact, 
Well, the skeptics really didn't go far enough with their theory. Didn't go far enough into chapter 21. And we're going to help them out. Um, Let's follow their reasoning one step further. In Luke 21, after prophesying the destruction of the temple, Jesus then describes the horrors that will befall Jerusalem at that time. Concluding in verse 24 with this, Jerusalem will be trampled. Some of your translations say treaded. Jerusalem will be trampled by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles is completed. Now, let's examine this prophecy and date it using the critics' reasoning. We're going to play their game by their rules on their turf. Okay. Of course, Jerusalem was trampled by the Roman Gentiles in 70 A.D. and again in 135 A.D. And then in 330 A.D. it was trampled by the Byzantine Gentiles. In 638, it was trampled by the Arab Gentiles. But the European Gentiles took over the trampling in 1099. But again, by the Arabs, it was taken over in 1187. And they did the trampling, the Europeans again in 1229, but the Arabs took it back in 1244 until it was trampled by the Ottoman Turks in 1517, 1516, who lost the trampling rights to the British in 1917, who then ceded them to the Jordanian Gentiles in 1948 until finally the time of the Gentile domination of Jerusalem was completed, as Jesus said. When the Jews reclaimed Jerusalem from the Gentiles in the Six-Day War of 1968. Now, following to its logical conclusion, the critics' theory as applied to Jesus' prophecy about the destruction of Jerusalem early in the same chapter of Luke, the Gospel of Luke must have been written after 1968. Hey, that's their system, not mine. All right, now on to the resurrection. Let's start with an indisputable fact. The tomb of Joseph of Arimathea was empty on that third day. How is it indisputable? Because the enemies of the first Christian church said it was empty. They, not the Gospels, the chief priests, the elders, the Sanhedrin, said so. By bribing soldiers in Matthew 27... To say that the disciples stole the body, they admit an empty, an empty tomb, tomb. Positive evidence from a hostile source is among the strongest kinds of historical evidence. Again, if an opposing source admits a f- fact decidedly not in their favor, then that issue is no longer in doubt. It is a stipulated fact. Now, Jewish stor- sources later even, uh, the Toledoth Yeshua, out of the second century Talmud, Repeat the stolen body claim. There are the Jewish and Roman traditions that acknowledge the empty tomb as well. Conversely, there's no ancient source that asserts that Jesus' body remained in the tomb. So here, the silence of history is deafening. Which brings us to our next fact. Both early Greek, Roman, Syrian, Samaritan sources confirmed that Christianity had its beginning in one location, Jerusalem, the one place in which Christianity could not have survived based on the central claim that Jesus was raised from the dead, 
had the evidence not been credible. And there was offered no satisfactory explanation for that tomb being empty, only the outlandish, bizarre tale that Caiaphas attempted to plant that the disciples stole the body. And we'll get to that more in a moment. The Sanhedrin, dominated by the Sadducees, had the political and the theological motives and the power to obtain evidence of where that body was if such evidence had been, had been available. Look, the disciples didn't run off to Damascus or Alexandria or Rome to proclaim Christ raised from the dead. They didn't even go home to Galilee. They went right back into Jerusalem, the very place where if what they were claiming was false, their message would have been instantly disproven as a lie if it could have been. The story of the resurrection of Jesus Christ could not have survived for 48 hours in the city of Jerusalem if that tomb had not been empty and the high priest's stolen body explanation had not been a desperate, frantic, spur-of-the-moment farce which was plain to all who thought about it. The city's too small. Little town, really. It's too compact. Look at a diagram of Jerusalem during that time. The grounds of the Indianapolis 500 would have swallowed up the entire walled city of Jerusalem. But because of its prominence in the Bible, and indeed world history, we tend to think of it as a large city, a megatropolis. But it was really a little more than a small town. Well, maybe not small. It was a population of about 25,000. And we know that because there has come down to us this five-day census that was ordered by Cestius Gallus, the governor of Syria, about 15 years after Christ, at a time when Judea was a part of Syria. And the population came out to about 25,000. About the population of Plymouth or Franklin, Indiana today. So anyone in Jerusalem could have walked over to Joseph's tomb and checked it out. And because Joseph and Nicodemus were members of the Sanhedrin right there in town, they were readily accessible for questioning, and certainly questioning by the other members of the Sanhedrin. You can be sure that they questioned them on the preparation of the body, the burial, the condition of the tomb, their participation in this whole <laughs> embarrassing affair. And do you believe that most of the Sanhedrin did not? troop over to that tomb to see for themselves. And what about the centurion who posted the guard and sealed the tomb, or the centurion who certified Jesus' death to Pontius Pilate in Mark 15? You can bet he did. And what about Pontius Pilate? Well, the Gospels don't tell us. But can it be seriously argued that he ordered no investigation whatsoever? Certainly he would. He had ordered the execution of someone known as King of the Jews in defiance of the authority of Caesar. He sent a custodia. Custodia is roughly equivalent to a squad in our army, 12 to 16 men. He sent that custodia over to guard that tomb. At a Seal, Roman seal placed on the tomb, which had been broken. His wife had this disturbing dream about this strange Galilean prophet. 
And now he's being told the tomb's empty. You can believe that Pilate ordered some kind of investigation, probably by his most trusted tribune or centurion. And this is important. How is it that the disciples became so visible after the resurrection and especially after Pentecost? Yet they were not arrested on the allegation of the great court of the Sanhedrin that they broke Roman law and stole the body. Penalty for breaking a Roman seal was death. Penalty for grave robbing was death. Two capital crimes. Why did the Romans not arrest them? Accused of defying Pilate, breaking Roman law, two places. They were right out there preaching on the street and in the very temple itself. Why no Roman arrest? Why no Roman torture to get them to disclose where they had taken the body and hid it? Why? Because Pilate knew that stolen body tale was a phony. Look at Matthew 28:11, And note that only some of the guards, some of the guards at the tomb, went back into the city and took a bribe from the high priest to say that the disciples stole the body. Now surely the others would have returned to the Antonio fortress where they were barracked, and reported the truth, if for no other reason than to avoid the wrath of Pilate for leaving their post and for the accusation of having slept on watch, both of which could have either been a severe scourging on a Roman military law or execution. So you can bet they went back and told the truth. Now remember, some of his soldiers were also at Jesus' arrest in the garden. So any minimal investigation would have told him that these frightened disciples had cut and run at the arrest, and now the high priest, Caiaphas, expects him to believe that this quaking, frightened little band of peasant fishermen and an ex-tax collector, after fleeing, deserting their leader at Gethsemane, were going to go up against a custodia of 12 to 16 Roman legionnaires in order to steal the body. And why would they take the time to unwrap the body and leave the grave clothes so neatly folded in place as John describes, then carry the body away naked? To these Jews, that would have been an unspeakable dishonor to their rabbi and a defilement of themselves under Mosaic law. And by the way, If the guards were asleep, how did they know it was the disciples? That grave robbing tale makes no sense. That dog won't hunt. And Pilate knew it. Now quickly, I want to thank you to think about this small city, Jerusalem again. Think about the number of specific names involved in the whole story. Here's a few. Malthus. Servant of the high priest, got his ear cut off. Roman guards, by the way, Malthus in other sources, we're told, was an early member of the Jerusalem church. Little wonder. We got Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, members of the great supreme court of the Sanhedrin. We got all those Roman guards stationed in Jerusalem. So many of them, they're right there in town among the early Jerusalem believers. Mary of Magdalena, Joanna, the wife of Herod's chief steward, 
his chief financial officer, Salome, Susanna, Mary, the mother of James and John. And we see, by the way, the same thing throughout Scripture. Notice the specificity of names, for example. Jairus, the leader of the synagogue whose daughter was raised. Jairus, by name, leader of the synagogue. Blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus. Which Bartimaeus? The son of Timaeus in Jericho. Check it out. That Bartimaeus. And it goes on and on. You can't make up a phony story about a resurrection in a small compacted city. Naming prominent people in town as actors in your plot. You can't get away with it. It's too easy to check out. Too many know. Check it out. It's all over town in 48 hours. Hey, how do you think 3,000 came to faith at Pentecost, including a great many priests? Priest in Acts 6. The Holy Spirit was moving, yes, but he had laid some pretty strong evidential groundwork before he moved at Pentecost. And Paul writes of seeing over 500, uh, writes of over 500 seeing the risen Christ at one time. You can't get away with a crazy statement like that in this small region unless you can back it up. Too easy to check out. Paul makes a fool of himself and of the faith he's trying to defend with a cockamamie story like that. Unless, unless it's true and you got the witnesses to back it up. Most of the 500, he says, he tells us, is still living. Go around and check it out. Now, let's focus on what the disciples write about themselves. And this is important. Throughout the Gospels, the writers record incident after incident, which places themselves in a very bad light. They let us in on their disbelief. Even after seeing one confirming miracle after another, they tell us about how Jesus has to rebuke them time and time again. For example, oh, you of little faith. And how they argue about who's going to get the best seats in the kingdom of heaven. Stuff like that. And here, regarding events surrounding the crucifixion resurrection, they record their fear, their confusion, their cowardice. In Matthew 26, 56, at Jesus' arrest, we read, Then all the disciples left him and fled. Matthew's writing about himself here. And in Mark 14, 50, Peter is reporting to Mark for him to put down for all time, and they all, including himself, forsook him and fled. So here we have this cringing, frightened little band of fishermen who ran away and locked themselves in that upper room, or maybe hid out over the weekend down in Bethany, a few miles from Jerusalem. Now, isn't it unlikely that the gospel writers would have fabricated a story about themselves, the apostles, the leaders of the church, deserting Jesus and hiding out in cowardice, while the women, on the other hand, went boldly to the crucifixion, stayed near the cross, saw him buried, then came back to the tomb immediately after Passover to announce, to anoint the body. And when the women told the apostles that the Lord had risen, they record that they refused to believe them. 
Because despite the Lord having told them that he would rise on the third day, they didn't expect it. Listen to me, if they'd expected it, they'd have been at that tomb waiting and told us so and described the resurrection if they had expected it. And while they honestly report all this about themselves, they furthermore report that while they spaced it, their enemies, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, sure got the message. That's why they asked Pilate for the guard in the first place at the tomb. They understood. And we're told of the embarrassing incident of Simon Peter cringing at the taunts of a slave girl, denying with curses that he had ever known this man of whom you speak, denying that he had ever been a disciple. Now, it's irrational to suggest that the gospel writers would have concocted a story about their own leader's apostasy and his denial of Jesus has not actually occurred. And so shameful a story is carried in all four of the gospels, further attesting to the truthfulness throughout of the whole of these reports. So the skeptics who claim the Gospels were simply fabricated by the early church, in addition to all the other evidence that we don't have time to catalog here, the Christian can answer that neither these apostles nor any early believers could have had any motive in painting the men as cowards and the women as courageous, especially in that society. And a later legend would have cleaned up the story you see. It would have had the disciples finding the early tomb, the, the empty tomb and being the first to see Jesus risen. Or maybe uh, Joseph and Nicodemus, but not the women, not in that culture. Which brings us to this very important point. Naming specific women as the first witnesses had to have been highly embarrassing to first century Jewish men. You see, in the first century Jewish culture, and for that matter, Greek and Roman as well, a woman was ranked only about a ratchet or two above a slave. In a Jewish legal proceeding, in a Jewish court, a woman's testimony was not admissible, was not allowed. Referring to the law of Moses, a rabbi of that era wrote, better to give the law to a Gentile than to a woman. No invented tale, no invented tale by Jewish men seeking credibility at the cost of truth would have ever named any woman as any witness, let alone as the first witness to the risen Christ. That's an admission against their interest again. And it gets worse. These men tell us that the first incredible report of Christ rising from the grave came from Mary Magdalene. Not only was the first testimony from a woman, but a woman who had been certifiably insane. Of course the men didn't refuse, refuse to believe her at first. And the only possible reason for the apostles to leave us this information about themselves is that they were compelled to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, quite literally so help them God, regardless of how they may have choked on it with embarrassment. They recorded the events faithfully as led by the Holy Spirit, a fabricated tale, a legend, a myth, 
out of first century Judaism would have had Peter, their leader, or John, the beloved disciple, to be the first to see the risen Christ, or James, the brother of Jesus, who we see in Mark uh, uh, coming with the family to take Jesus home because he's, quote, out of his mind. But after the resurrection, the next time we've seen James is in Acts 15. And he's a leader in the Jerusalem church. But better still, how about Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus? What better first witnesses to the reason Christ could you have than two members of the great court of the Sanhedrin? Witnesses don't come any better than that. But very unlike the prevailing mythologies of surrounding pagan religions, these stories have got the ring of truth about them. Because the participants describe themselves with all of their fears, all of their doubts, all of their human failings, their cowardice, for all the world to see for all time. Revealing that all that negative stuff about themselves becomes positive evidence for truth. But look at Peter again with his denial of the Lord. It was the truth of the resurrection that changed Peter from a craven, cursing, trembling liar before a slave girl into a bold, courageous spearhead of the gospel of Jesus Christ where we suddenly find him preaching at the temple, the very headquarters and home office of the men who had manipulated Pilate into crucifying Christ and the men from whom they had fled a few days before. Something happened. Something happened that transformed these scared chicken fishermen into the courageous vanguard that carried the gospel across the world and ultimately turned the great Roman Empire upside down and transformed the moral structure of Western civilization. Something happened. A resurrection happened. And consider this. These same men who had deserted the Lord, shown such cowardice, spent the rest of their physically miserable lives in a state of joy while they were being persecuted, jailed, beaten, what have you, and ultimately went to a terrible martyrdom. One was flayed alive, another speared to death, Several were crucified as their Lord had been, that terrible means of execution. All for a lie that they knew was a lie. Give me a break. There was a resurrection. And it so transformed these men that they were never the same again. Well, the shameful story of the brothers who tried to go Jesus into going to Jerusalem for the Feast of the Tabernacles and uh, perform public miracles, remember that? After the authorities already tried to kill him and now had a warrant out for his arrest. I mean, that's a terrible story. And yet here we have James as head of the Jerusalem church. Jude writes the letter. That becomes a part of New Testament scripture, Eusebius and other New Testament early uh, uh, writers in the first century tell us that the brothers carried the gospel throughout Galilee 
and up through Syria. And what about Manaean? Who? Manaean. Look at the opening of chapter 13 of the book of Acts. Manaean was raised in that terrible family of Herod the Great. And was the foster brother of Herod Antipas, the guy who beheaded John the Baptist and to whom Pilate sent Jesus during his trial. What could have brought a man from that infamous family of Herods to Christ and leadership in the church at Antioch? A resurrection. And here now I want to leave you with an especially interesting complexity of harmonizing all of the details in the four gospel accounts of the resurrection of Christ. And it must be acknowledged first that there are some difficulties in the variations on their common story. But critical scholars are grossly mistaken when they wave these difficulties about like a banner proclaiming that the resurrection accounts are a fraud because they contradict each other. Now that is either a totally ignorant reading of the evidence or they're reading it with their nose too close to the page or they're reading, have reading in, having abandoned any rational thought process. All four Gospels contain differences throughout of the various es- episodes throughout Christ's ministry based on the viewpoint of the writer and where he placed the emphasis in his narrative. Now, this needs to be emphatically stressed. The variations in the narratives actually support, rather than undermine their veracity for truth, they demonstrate that they were independent witnesses to a single core event. And the several accounts supply more complete documentation, each adding details that the others don't contain. And the fact that differences were never edited out, smoothed over, harmonized within Scripture itself, testifies that there was no uniform experience of events, of the events, and therefore no fabricated version of the details. Mythmongers and fablers would have smoothed out all the wrinkles, a story made up, would have had no lumps and bumps and gaps. And do you think the first copyist of those books didn't see the same differences that we do? It testifies to the reverence with which they held the writing as holy because they didn't change the story. But they also understood, as modern critics seem not to, that witnesses do not all see all the details nor see them from the same place at the same time in a shared experience. Look at a modern parallel. Eyewitnesses will invariably report the same event from different angles. And uh, sometimes those variations will be startling, by the way. True to life, witnesses to an automobile accident will invariably see it from different angles and therefore tell the details differently. They may even disagree as to who was at fault. But they all agree on the core event. There was a wreck. 
And certainly the first Easter witnesses reporting something as stunningly awesome as what they saw would tell their story from different vantage points with different emphases while all agree on the core event. There was a resurrection. And the very need to harmonize the narratives tells us that the writers simply call the same event from different times and places. Let me close with this. The variations that you see lend credibility to the different narratives. And these so-called problem differences actually support the veracity of these witnesses for truth. Because if I'm hearing four witnesses on the witness stand, each giving me the same testimony in exactly the same way, with all of the details so orderly and neatly dovetailed together, that's not real. I know that I am listening to a conspiracy of four well-rehearsed liars. And had the four gospel testimonies all fallen neatly in order with one another, those same critics would be yelling, well, obviously it's a fraud because all the witnesses are telling the story identically. And for once, they would have finally had something right. Be thankful to God that indeed, he gave us the testimonies as they are from different vantage points, emphasizing different pieces of the event. That's reality. That's truth. Now, I wish I could make a whole seminar out of this because by actual count, I could give you 36 items of good probative evidence in support of the resurrection of Christ. But let's leave it with this. As he conquered death, he is who he said he is. And if he is who he said he is, then those who ignore him or who simply dismiss him as a great ethicist, a great moral teacher of love, then according to his own warning, they do so at their own eternal peril. For remember, the preferred, the politically correct Jesus of so many modern churches, the non-judgmental Jesus, the sweet Jesus, meek and mild, he is also the death slayer, the gate wrecker at the portals of hell. He is the lion of Judah, the terrible swift sword, the avenger of blood, and he chastens with a rod of iron. And triune wrath precedes his reign and rule. Sorry, folks, but the tough comes with the tender. He didn't give us the option to cherry-pick Scripture for only the attributes of God we're comfortable with and recreate our own God in an image that we like. I believe that's called idolatry. So measure ever so carefully the magnitude of his sacrificial love, atoning for your sins against the cost of dismissing him or trying to change him into a more toned-down, acceptable Jesus, rejecting him or merely taking him for granted. Thank you for your attention this morning. Pastor Brad, would you close for us?